Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Clara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think we have a lot to talk about with you and your post-grad school career. If you could, to start us off, please uh, let the folks at home know just a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where they can find you online. Hey, y'all. I am Clara. Um, I just finished grad school with master's in chemistry. And I now work as a data analyst and adjunct as a part-time gig on the side. Also do some like research aid consulting work too. I'm a very busy woman. Um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is just underscore the number four and then Clara Fication spelled C-L-A-R-A Fication. Uh, play on my name. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, my first last name underscore 14 and happy to connect with anyone. Awesome. And I'll definitely have links to both of those in the description of this episode. So folks can scroll down and click on those and jump right to your profile. So Clara, let's start from the beginning. Why did you go to grad school in the first place? Oh yeah. So uh, my higher ed journey is probably way less linear than a lot of folks who end up going to grad school, especially around my age. So I took two years off in my undergrad um, just because personal reasons. I was struggling a lot and um, I wasn't really sure if finishing college was right for me at the time. And when I came back from that break, for some reason, something was just different. I mean, I, I was older, I had a bit more experience, a bit more money, a bit more life had happened at that point. But I really got to know some of my chemistry professors at that time. And also, ironically, I took a science writing class that was taught by an instructor that that really seemed to resonate me resonate with me. But at some point, I really realized that I enjoyed chemistry, particularly like being in the lab, um, doing syntheses, uh, doing some of the biochem stuff related to my degree. And I just really kind of dove in and said, okay, well, I only have one and a half years left because I took a two-year break in my, in my education. Can I do anything that can bridge this gap for research? And basically everyone I met told me no until I met my undergrad research mentor who was like, well, I know that you only have, you know, a year and a half here and a bunch of people are telling you no because they don't think that's enough time to actually get anything good out of you in a contribution to their lab. But I'm here to tell you that you can do these things for me. We can work on um, what you want to do next. And he ended up really kind of opening my eyes to grad school as like something, he didn't really sugarcoat it. He, he was, uh, so he did his, 
PhD at um, Harvard and then went to MIT for postdoc. And he was completely disillusioned with mm. higher ed and his experiences there and what it actually meant to be successful in higher ed. Cause turns out it's not necessarily your aptitude. It's how you play the game. Mm-hmm. And so he was very practical. He's like, I love what I do and I want you to love what you do, but I want you to understand that all of that like really feeds into your self-worth and I don't want you to get caught up in that. So I got a very holistic sense of what grad school could be like. And I think because he was such a great mentor to me, I kind of, I feel like inadvertently he gave me rose colored glasses for academia. Cause I was like, Oh, well, if someone's going to mentor me, they're always going to be like this. They're always yeah. going to be super supportive, um, critical, but like at the same time, really wanting me to be successful. And so with his support and his recommendation, I went into the grad program at university of Colorado and I found out from my first advisor in grad school that who is nothing like my undergrad advisor, that it was a very different experience. Um, I think my main motivation was that I felt so supported um, in those that last year and a half of my undergrad degree that it was just something I wanted. I wanted that support and I wanted to develop as a professional because I felt like I was behind my peers. Mm. Then some at some point I realized in grad school, I'm like, okay, it really depends on who your mentor is. It depends on whether or not you actually get that support yeah. to get to where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that comes up for every grad student. And that's like a lot of the conversations that I've been involved in over the years is like your mentor can make or break your grad school experience. I mean... And there are a few people who are just so like, you know, steel in their heart and mind that they don't really need a mentor, but those are like one in 10,000. I'm not one of those people. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great to have those good mentors when you get them. Um, so when, when did you decide in your, did you ever think you were going to go for the PhD or did you think you were going to stay for the, just the master's? I was dead set on getting my PhD until Mm. I think I started questioning after my first semester. So my, the mentor that I got, um, because so this was during COVID. And so I actually went from someone who wanted to do nanoparticle research to someone who's doing computational research. And at that time I was really interested in like inorganic synthesis so basically glommed on to the only inorganic faculty we had left that was doing computational research. And he, he was like not the best mentor mm-hmm. and our experience working together was always like he, he, I think he thought that because he, he, he didn't mentor a lot of female students. And I think his thought was that because I was so driven and I wanted to do things, it clashed with his, he didn't have a strong work ethic. He didn't really mm, care yeah. whether or not, cause he's, he's close to retirement. He's like sure. in his last year right now. He like, he's like, I don't really care if I get any publications. Like, I don't really care about being a mentor anymore. He's like, I really put in my work, I'm ready to retire. And he didn't, he wasn't really like open with me about that. So when I was like, I, I'm ready to go, go, go. I'm ready to, you know, do what I want to do and get in here and be focused because I really thought that's, you know, this is my path. I, I really know mm-hmm. what I want to do. And he was just like, yeah, okay would kind of just blow me off. I'd ask for new mm. projects and he'd say, well, I don't really think I'm ready to start a new project. 
or I'd be like, can we apply for funding for this project? And he'd say, no, I really don't want to go through the grant application process. Um, he's like, you couldn't get a grant on your own, but like, I, I just really don't want to deal with it right now. And so I really felt super limited. And then that's when I kind of realized, okay, if this is going to be my whole experience, I don't really want to do this for five yeah. years. Um, I ended up changing labs. So I'm one of those um, change labs, live to tell the tale people. Um, I changed labs and I was still set. Okay. I think I can salvage this. I think I can get my PhD. And then my grant funding um, got really messed up. And so there was a point where my teaching stipend and my research stipend wasn't making sense to me. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm going on, I was in my late twenties and I had only ever like, you know, made not a lot of money. And I said to myself, okay, because I switched labs, I'm kind of starting over, like, this is still going to be a long road. And I don't know if I want to be like financially insecure, demoralized, and just overall feeling kind of like this was a bad experience. I don't want to deal with that for another four years. Yeah. So I was lucky that I had a new mentor who is very supportive and he's actually helped me a lot in my career now, but he kind of just laid it out for me. He's like, you, if you want to get some good publications, he's like, I don't give either or if you want to leave right now with your master's, I don't care if like you want to test out, not finish your thesis. I don't like whatever you want to do. He's like, I feel sad that the department didn't give you a good enough experience that you want to finish, but mm. you do what's best for you. And yeah. so he was the one who got me on the path of data science and big data and analytics and said, you know, this is a good opportunity. You want to do this. You want to graduate and then decide later if you want to do a PhD in something else. Because I can tell now you probably don't want to do a PhD in chemistry anymore. Like. Mm. We'll, we'll work on that. But yeah. his support was really what drove me to kind of making the best decision that I could have made at the time. That's fantastic. That's so awesome to hear. What, um, when did you start looking for jobs in industry? I started looking for jobs my last semester before okay. graduation. So um, I... I was kind of really undecided on whether or not I wanted to do academia or go straight to industry um, just because I don't know what it is. And you probably feel the same way. Sometimes the pull of academia, it doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. battered and beaten us and made us feel terrible at times. But sometimes it's just like, a, I just keep going back sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was looking for jobs that last semester and I wasn't having a ton of luck with the industry jobs. And I think that's just, here in Colorado, it's it's pretty competitive in industry, and it's even competitive like uh, if you work at like a national lab, or if you work at like um, we have a medical school research institution that does a lot of bioinformatics research. Even that's like super yeah. competitive, and so I wasn't having a lot of luck getting some of the industry interviews that I really wanted, and so I started looking at higher ed stuff, and um, you know. I happened to find a data analytics position that was at a community college. So it's kind of like consulting gig. And I kind of jumped on that wagon. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm, 
probably the the whole thing about like me going into data analytics is I always thought because my training was in like conventional science that I was not qualified to Mm. do analytics. And I thought, okay, well, I'm applying for this job, but it's a shot in the dark. And that was like how all the informatics jobs like I applied for were. It's just like, it's a shot in the dark. They want someone who studied informatics. They want someone who has a PhD in bioinformatics. Like my experience doesn't matter. But after having like some interviews and getting people's feedback on kind of how I presented myself um, as a data science person, rather than just a scientist, empirical scientist, it kind of really helped me through the interview process because I realized that all the stuff we do as like empirical scientists is very data science adjacent, even if we're not doing data Mm -hmm. analytics. It requires a lot of analytical thinking. So I really learned to sell myself in that way. That was the hardest part was looking for jobs, especially that close to graduation. I felt really rushed and learning how to sell myself and making people realize that my skills are very transferable to pretty much anything you want to do. Yeah. That's uh, before I jump on that thought, how long have you been out of grad school at this point? Uh, Only three months. Three months. Okay. And you're still at that same position, right? I am. Yes. Yeah. And so, so to go back, the thing that you said really resonates with me because like we as grad students, and you know, I'm obviously biased towards like handling quantitative data. That's what I did as a grad student. That's what I do now in industry. That's kind of the world. That's kind of my world. Um, uh, Specifically data about like people and their behavior and health outcomes. Um, we as academics, when we do that research, we are building skills that are relevant to industry. And there's, there's this like, it's this really interesting paradox that I've heard recruiters talk about where grad students are seen as both overqualified and underqualified. And so we're overqualified in that we have a graduate degree that may not be necessary for the job. And so they think, oh, well, maybe they're going to ask for, you know, more money than we can pay them or want to pay them. And, uh, or maybe this will just be a job where they stay for two months before they get to their next job that they really wanted. But then we're also seen as underqualified because all of our, or most of our data research experiences are academic and it's hard for them to really know if someone has actually like done the work you know, have they produced a product with, with the research skills? And, um, I I think, I think so many, and I, I fell into this mindset too, of like, I just don't have anything to offer industry, but it's like we do, but it requires translation. It's like a both. And, um, do you, how did, how did you, whenever you went through the interview process there, how do you feel like you like pitched yourself as someone who could do the job, even though your, you know, your data skills were coming from a, an academic setting. Yeah, that was something that was kind of a trial and error experience. I think at first, I really tried to sell it as something that was like, abstract. Like I was really like, okay, well, I've done research before. This is my product. Like I obviously had to analyze in between. Um, and here's kind of like what that process looks like for me. But then I kind of realized that especially in some of the more technical interviews, they really want specifics about like your project and what, like how your process of like a data life cycle is. 
And so how do you get the data? How do you decide what questions you're trying to answer? How do you consult the people who are asking for the actual you know, impact of the data? And how does that result in some sort of change? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had to figure out, okay, um, the, the, the cool thing was is that I was already versed in programming. And so nice. a lot of the interviews I got were like, okay, well, do you know how to like parse this, this, and this? And I'm like, well, I'm very good at Python. I'm very good at computational modeling already. So it was kind of easier for me to say, okay, well, I know I can do this job because I've done it before. You can see my code that I've done you mm-hmm. can look at my product. But before I really got to that point where I was comfortable doing that, I had to really adjust and say, okay, here's a project I worked on with um, druggable proteins. Um, these are the th- questions that I wanted to answer about this druggable protein here's how I got in, got the data, decided what data was worth it. And here's how my process went along to actually solve the problem and answer the questions that I had originally asked about this drugable protein. And that was what made people impressed. Mm. That was the process where they like, well, okay, I don't know anything about proteins, but that all sounds very impressive because your problem solving skills and your application sound like exactly what we're looking for. And just changing that small little scope and being more specific about my own projects was really what made the difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you did you cre- have any kind of portfolio when you were on the job market? Like either in, um, I forget where people host their code. Oh, GitHub. I feel so dumb. Yes, GitHub. Either on GitHub or your own website. So you did have something like that? Yeah, I sent people my GitHub links like it was um, a religious text. Yeah. Almost. Yes, I put it on my resume. I put it on my application, put on LinkedIn. I asked them, you know, during the interview, I'm like, oh, yeah, my GitHub. And then I'm like, I can share my screen and show you if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was I was always plugging um, my code output, which was very impressive to people who were interviewing me for code-based data analyst positions who didn't mm-hmm. know my code. They were like, wow brilliant and i'm like oh, yeah. this isn't even that impressive but i'm glad i impressed you yeah dude i mean that's what i found so i i went on the job market god i just shared this in the last podcast so people will hear it twice but i i went on the job market twice the industry job market once was um kind of like shortly after i quit my research scientist position i was trying all these random side hustle things building you know small businesses uh and i had um i applied to 200 job 200 data analyst jobs and i didn't do any prep i was just like you know what here's my resume that i made in 30 minutes literally copy and pasting from my cv didn't have a portfolio didn't have a fleshed out linkedin or anything it was absolute crickets i heard nothing um and then i was like well maybe it's not meant to be and i was still interested in like the I was doing Airbnb and all these random things and I had interest in doing them. And so I just kept on doing that. And then a year after that, which is kind of like a year from today, a year ago today, I got the itch again. I was like, well, maybe I should just jump into the industry market because I'm kind of burnt out on all these side hustle things that I'm doing that don't feel like they're leading anywhere. And I actually did it the right way. I, you know, upskilled a little bit learning SQL. And then I created a portfolio that I put on my website. I didn't put it on GitHub. Um, Actually, I might have put part of it on GitHub. But anyway, I created a portfolio project. 
I did a resume the way I was supposed to by looking at other data analyst resumes. And it's amazing if you actually, you know, for me, it was actually doing the right things and laying, laying it out to recruiters, basically meeting them halfway and saying, I actually can do these things and I'm willing to do the work to show you that I can. And then it was like, you know, doors started opening and I was like, oh, well, great. This was, you know, way better than a year ago when I tried. Yeah. Um, it's so it's so crazy that if we just go and we meet recruiters halfway and give them that like insight into our work and that we can actually make things happen, you know, interest follows. Yeah, it seems to anyway. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, yeah. I feel like sometimes when I would meet with recruiters, especially who, um, you know, they're most of them were like comms, like communications background mm -hmm. folks who were just yeah. like interviewing people for these positions. Those were the best interviews I had because being able to explain your work to someone who doesn't do it yeah. themselves, they're like, wow, that's great. The fact that you could teach me some stuff about that, that those were, I think, my most successful interviews. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so awesome. So you, you also, in addition to this uh, dating analyst job, you're doing adjuncting as well, right? Yes. So right now I adjunct for organic chemistry at um, University of Colorado, Denver. And um, I'm going to start adjuncting at the community college that I work at right now. I'm going to start piloting um, this like STEM, like STEM support program course. Mm -hmm. So it's like an intro first seminar course focused on um, like filling gaps and things like mathematical thinking, digital literacy, um, you know, STEM study skills, those kinds of things. Uh, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty deep into the adjunct world. I'd say for someone who's only a few months out of grad school. Yeah. And you're loving it so far. I am loving it so far. I think, and I think this is true of a lot of folks in grad school. We have such a love for science, at least when we start. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I feel like sharing that with students is very special. And that's, I think, why a lot of us really are interested in professorships and staying in academia mm -hmm. after grad school, because those relationships we have with students, whether or not it's in the lab as like a mentor to them, or it's in the classroom as a TA, I think those exchanges are very meaningful. And so that's what I really thought I would miss out of grad school. And so when the opportunity came, when uh, the department chair was like, hey, um, we need some space um, to have extra instructors because we're not necessarily meeting goals right now with having enough instructors for like OCHEM labs or some of these lectures, would you like to join the instructor pool? And I was very fortunate that it only took me writing a really crappy cover letter and half-assed um, teaching philosophy yeah. <laughs> to get that job because they already knew, well, we know you, we know you can teach. We sure. know you've been a great research mentor. We know you've done a really good job as a grad student. So we'll hire you. Just you have to fill out the application for, you know, formality's sake. So I was lucky that I didn't have to kind of put myself on that adjunct job market because sure. coming to a community college, some of our adjunct positions have like 40 applicants. Mm. These are people who usually already have full-time jobs, like just trying to like 
you know, either they do really like teaching, especially at a community college, or they're just trying to make some extra cash. It's a, it's kind of a rough competitive field out here. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm lucky that I did not have to go through that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, I mean, I, I feel like I'm in an interesting position right now because I spend a lot of energy telling grad students to not adjunct. Um, I think, I think your situation is of course unique because you, you do have a full-time gig as a data analyst. So how do you view adjuncting as, uh, for grad students who are on that, like do or die, I'm going academic and I will take the adjuncting gig in the hopes of propelling into a actual professor position in the future for those folks. Do you have any thoughts or advice on like adjuncting as like a, if it were your main source of income? Oh, well, so um, I guess my thought would be, and here, so I'm, I'm taking some like education classes right now um, uh, just as something like a, I guess it's, it's, it's something I enjoy. So a lot of the, uh, what I'm learning nowadays is that, it's very strange our journey to professorship because we're not necessarily taught how to teach. We're taught about our, our specific subject and we become very good at our specific subject, but we're not really taught how to teach it. And so a lot of times if you're an adjunct who wants to make the move to a full-time position, whether it be that instructor or a tenure track, I think a lot of those folks have never thought about making up portfolio with real results Mm. of how their teaching impacts students in a positive way. So what my teaching mentors have really drilled into me, and this was even true back when I was an undergrad with my really supportive mentor who was like, if this is the path you want to do, start getting your data about how you do things now. And so I've always been um, really good about, you know, if I have any sort of metrics related to my teaching like if I can get my pass rates out there, if I can get my test scores out there, if I can compare my tests that I've written to other folks who've written tests that maybe there's different pass rates. If I can show someone who wants to hire someone who is a teacher-focused faculty, or maybe even like research and teaching, if I can show them, hey, I know how to teach mm-hmm. and I can prove it to you because these are my FCQ results these are my test score results. I show a very strong trend of student success in the courses that I teach. I show a very strong trend of students actually learning the information. And I think especially for STEM, that is super impactful. Yeah. So if people want to adjunct with the hopes of getting the actual full-time gig, the best advice I could think of as someone who does it part-time is build a portfolio and Prove to anyone that you can teach because that truly makes a lot of difference. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to the same thing that you were talking about with, uh, with your GitHub, you know, show your work. If you show your work, people will, people will believe you because anyone, anyone could put anything on a resume. It just types up on there. I know I'm a scrum master. I'm, you know, I know. You you can put literally anything on your resume and but yeah sh- if you show your work it it tells such a fuller story that makes so much sense. Um, so if we could jump back to data analytics for just a second, 
could you kind of describe your day-to-day work as a, a data analyst? Yeah. So um, usually a lot of my days are some weeks I'm very task heavy where I'm like in the weeds, doing the code work, running reports, building visualizations, communicating with our stakeholders. Um, And in my work, because I am an academic data analyst, my stakeholders are either faculty, dean, student services, those kinds of offices. I basically kind of consult them through data projects that they're interested in. Um, Some weeks are more meeting heavy. Mm. Uh, So it kind of depends on the week. A lot of the meetings that I do are basically just talking strategy with folks. Um, Because I'm new, I haven't had a ton of meetings where I'm advising them on changes yet. Right now I'm advising them on methods to like assess. And so all those meetings are kind of at early stages, but hopefully soon some of that will be, okay, this is what we're going to change. This is our strategy. Uh, But it is really, it's meeting heavy, but it's also very task heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of coding. Uh, I have to often remind myself that my eyes are organs that are not robotic. And I have to look at something that's not a computer screen yeah. because it, uh, and I don't know about you in terms of data analytics, when I get deep in the weeds with a project, I have a hard time getting myself to stop because yeah. I become almost obsessed yeah. with some of those numbers. And it, it, I find it enjoyable and I'm sure you do too, but yeah, it's, it's a, I, I sometimes get deep into those tasks and then have to remind myself that, oh, the work day is only nine to five. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, if, if I can't solve a problem, it will really, but I know if I'm approaching the end of my work day, I know if something is going to like stick with me, I just save it for the next day. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, I have to get my mind into, you know, dad mode and being fun with my kid and, you know, being a normal human. And, but yeah, I can, I, I remember when I was a grad student, pre-kid, I would, I would sometimes, if I got new data in, I would spend eight to 12, not eight to 12 hours of typing, but eight to 12 hours of time sitting, you know, so I'd change locations, but I was, once you get in it, it's like, and I've, I've heard people who do software development talk about like getting in the tunnel or I don't know the exact metaphor, but once you, once you get in the mind frame of like thinking in code, it's like, why would you break that? Because you'll you'll have to do all the work to get back into that space again. And uh, yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I like to do it first thing in the morning because then I've got, you know, a couple hours of good energy and then do meetings in the afternoon and emails and all that. But yeah, no, I totally get that. What, so I'm curious, what kind of like languages or programs are you using? So I primarily work in Python. And that's what I usually, um, I'm actually mentoring some undergrad students right now that are interested in learning some like data analytics for physical sciences. And I always recommend like Python's a good one, unless you're doing like bio stuff, then probably R. Um, That's probably a good one. But um, (laughs) I do work secondarily in R, um, SQL. So I build relational databases using SQL, joining, Mm -hmm. um, pulling queries, those kinds of things. also do some web development stuff. 
oh, using cool. a Python language subset called Django, um, mm-hmm. which is becoming more popular. Um, people seem really impressed with folks who can do, jo- I, I don't know JavaScript, but um, if you're ever doing like informatics work that requires you to like send something to a website, they're really impressed with like JavaScript knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's primarily Python, what I work in. That's cool. Python was one that I I dabbled in, never really like dove in head first, never got that much experience with. And it still kind of intimidates me, I think partially because I know that you can use it for both like development and analysis, uh, which is crazy to me to think because, you know, I I really cut my teeth on M plus. I don't know if you've heard of M plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and that's, you know, does a very small subset of statistics and doesn't even do everything. So yeah, the idea that you could have one package that's doing like analysis and software development is crazy to me, but yeah, we use mainly SQL. We actually use, we actually use SAS, which blew my mind. Um, but we use proc SQL within SAS. So I'm writing, I'm writing SQL code, which is, a whole another level of nerddom for <laughs> truly, truly. for the non-STEM listeners out there. <laughs> um, Sorry about it. <laughs> yeah, programming a program. So for folks who, who want to end up in a like a data analyst type role, and let's say they're grad students now, what can they be doing right now to prepare for uh, you know applying to jobs in the future? Yeah. Well, so if you don't have coding experience, I'd say learn a language, hmm. at least the basics. Um, honestly, I, I've I've done Coursera. I've done EDX. Honestly, I really like LinkedIn Learning. LinkedIn hmm. Learning, to me, has been the most approachable user interface as someone who's like recommending coding teaching tools to people. Um, yes, LinkedIn Learning is great. Um, If you are in STEM and you have any data that can be applied to code, try to code with it using Mm -hmm. what you learn either from a mentor, someone you know, like in your research that codes. Um, If you can pull some of those skills from LinkedIn Learning, that's great. But if you can apply the code, that's really kind of what makes a difference. I've found it, you know, I started coding three years ago, not having any idea what I was doing. no one was really like teaching me that structured. I kind of just figured it out. But the more and more I practiced, the better I got. And that actually helped me with, I I hadn't taken a statistics class since high school when I took AP stats. Mm. And so I was super rusty and I'm like, man, I don't even remember what a linear regression is. But <laughs> mudding my way through a lot of those things in code really refresh those things to me. And it was better that way too, because when I learned it in school, statistics, it made sense to me, but I didn't understand what, the, I didn't know what sure. the big picture was. I didn't know how to communicate those things to people. And so actually applying it, basically, you know, I, I went past all those things that were like the abstract ideas of statistics. I was like, oh yeah. no, I know how to apply to this. So I know how to talk to people about it. I know how to communicate results. That was very helpful. I also say build a portfolio for sure. Mm. Even if it's just like your practice code, like document it, document it, document it. Um, If you take a workshop or anything, post what you do in that workshop to your GitHub, if you know how to do that. If not, 
find out how to work GitHub um, if you're interested in data analytics because people really like um, you to be able to do like utility stuff like that. Uh, I'd say one of the other things that helped me was preparing for interviews and even writing cover letters, getting to understand what the kind of questions and problems were being solved by the lab or the company that I was applying for and talking about some of your strategies. And this, like, this is something you could do even if you didn't code, like just talking about, okay, these are the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve in this institution or company. Here's how I would go about solving them. Just selling yourself as an analytic person. And if you Mm. don't have those skills, try to build on them. Um, Like I said, LinkedIn learning, I will plug LinkedIn learning until the day I die, unless it dies for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, so I learned SQL through Coursera, the Google data analytics course, um, which, which was fine. I, I think, uh, I think maybe a more, uh, streamlined course just on you know sql probably would have been a better fit for me but i think i have not tried linkedin learning um honestly i don't know if i've heard of it before but i'll definitely be looking into that yeah the the bad thing is is that you have to pay for it Mm. but you have access to everything once you pay for it i'm very lucky that my institution gives me free linkedin learning nice so i can basically learn whatever i want from linkedin learning but they i mean they have everything you could imagine on there like anything you could find on Coursera you could probably find on LinkedIn learning too and they're very like high quality programs because they're built for professionals they're not built like um you know in a college class is not that a college class wouldn't prepare you but they're built with the idea that you're going to be applying these skills mm. to your work yeah and so it it teaches you the skills in a very applicable way rather than an abstract ideal way. That's awesome. Yeah. LinkedIn learning folks. All right. So um, Claire, we are nearing the end of our conversation. I have one. So one of the questions that I was wondering is, so you're three months into this position. That's correct, right? Three months, Mm -hmm. three months. So you're getting further into data analytics. What are you thinking in terms of like your own, career progression down the road? Are you thinking sticking with data analytics? Are you thinking going deeper into data science? Or I know you had mentioned doing some computational modeling before. Any thoughts on tomorrow? Yeah, I don't know. Oddly enough, um, I'm already thinking about what if I went back to school and did a PhD in computer science? Oh, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I I just don't know anymore. I'm I'm one of those people that kind of, um, I feel very passionate about mm-hmm. things in the moment. And sometimes I reevaluate later on and I feel like I'm interested in different things. So right now, this is a great fit for me. It really affords me a type of work-life balance that I didn't think was possible. Mm-hmm. And so I think if I stay with this, I'd probably like to go more into like the really harder computational modeling mixed with yeah. coding, some developing work. I'd really like to maybe one day build my own software for like Mm. chemical informatics or bioinformatics. Um, That would be like where I would imagine myself now, but that might change sometime soon. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of fickle. (laughs) Yes. Some people don't like to hear, 
my boss is in the other room, so hopefully you didn't hear me. Um. No, for sure, for sure. We'll edit that part out. Um, yeah, no, I totally get that. I totally get that. That's cool. Um, so, Claire, will you just uh, remind everyone uh, who wants to follow along in their journey, remind them where they can follow you online? Yes, follow me on Instagram. Again, my handle is going to be linked below. Um, and follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't have a picture yet on LinkedIn because I don't think any of them look super professional because they're all me with like animals mm. or plants. Um, so if you can find, if my name matches, my name is Clara Sandoval, S-A-N-D-O-V-A-L. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, <coughs> again, linked below. I'm happy to connect on either. If you ever need help about getting into coding as someone from the empirical sciences, I'm happy to talk to you about that. Awesome. Awesome. Yes, definitely scroll down into the description and click on those links. Uh, so Clara, final question, or before I get to the final question, was there anything that you wanted to talk about today that we did not get to? I think we talked about everything. Okay. Yeah. I had, I think we checked everything on my list. Okay. So final question for you. What do you think grad students should, one thing grad students should consider doing before they end their time in grad school? could be fun, could be professional, anything. I think one thing grad students should definitely do before they leave grad school is one, try to travel, try to travel yeah. to like a conference, try to travel, even if it's like, it's just for fun, try to see where traveling and your career can take you because the biggest thing for me about wanting this career in data analytics was the fact that I can A, travel to conferences, I can B, work remote, and I can travel when I want. And I didn't really realize until I was a grad student, I was traveling to conferences, I was working from home as a grad student because I was a computational researcher. I didn't realize how much like having time for myself meant until I started traveling. And so that, that was kind of what really pushed me into finding something that had a good work-life balance. And I think until you have those life experiences, you're kind of like workhorse, workhorse, workhorse. I need to keep up this work ethic. And I'm telling you, maybe you don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of jobs in industry that, that can afford you a good work-life balance. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Clara, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to meet you and chat with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, I'll see you next time. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.